Well, good morning, and welcome to Grace, especially those of you who are here for the very first time. And uh, thank you, Sean, for your kind words. I don't know if, David, if you made the connection that song, Great Is Thy Faithfulness, was sung at Linda's funeral, and David was a part of leading that song, and I'm grateful I wasn't going to say anything about it. Allison was the one who actually talked to Sean, I think, about that, which lets you know something about her. I am thinking about uh, my kids this morning, and I'm far from being the only one who has suffered loss in these recent years. Uh, Many of you have. My heart and mind just went out to so many of you who have lost loved ones in the last few years. But, you know, um, we're here for just a very short time on this earth. Every single one of us, if we live to be 125, um, more opportunities to watch Carolina beat Duke. But other than that, you know, I mean, it's Sean talking about Duke this morning. Yes, not so far this year, huh? In anything, I don't think. But our, our time is short, and uh, the, the, the message today speaks to God's working in our lives in this very short time that we're here. It's very short, but it is very, very meaningful. I wonder if you have reached the age where you would acknowledge that uh, the older you get, the less you know. I don't know if you're to that point. Usually it happens somewhere in the mid-twenties, something like that. You know, you begin to think, oh, wow, I, I thought I, I was a little more advanced than I am with my knowledge. And then you just, as years go by, you think, wow, I don't know anything at all. <clears throat> well, uh, what about knowing people? Generally speaking, the, the longer you know someone, the better you know them. Now, occasionally you run into these people that are very complex and all of a sudden one of these one day you just realize they've got these six skills that you knew nothing about and you're you know there are layers to the personality and you're saying who are you anyway but for the most part the longer we know someone the better we know them so how about god would you say that you know him better than you did 10 to 15 years ago Do you know more about him now or less about him now than you you knew 10 to 15 years ago? Maybe it's like this. The more, the longer we know the Lord, the richer and deeper and fuller we understand him to be. Now, get this. It's very important that when we're learning about God that we are on the right path. Because if, if you and I start out next to one another and Our goal is to be at a certain place at a certain time. And one of us is just slightly off. I mean, just a a degree or two off. In the end, you're going to be a long ways off. So if you start down the wrong road learning about God, then you can be a long way from where you want to end up being. But for the most part, the more we know about God, the better we know him. I really wish we had time to answer this question for you to just share. But what would you say is different in your knowledge about God than it was 10 to 15 years ago? How do you know him differently than you knew him 10 to 15 years ago? How much more do you know? What's changed about your understanding? And what did you know about God 10 to 15 years ago that actually you have found out lately 
was wrong thinking about God. I thought I knew God in this way, but it turns out now that I've examined Scripture more carefully, I understand him to be different than I thought he was. When we talk about the ways that God reveals himself to us, we talk about general revelation and specific or special revelation. Revelation, revealing. He's revealing himself to us. There are ways that God reveals himself generally to all mankind, obviously through creation, through our consciences, um, through our sense of justice, knowing that there's a right and a wrong and there's somebody bigger than we are who determines right and wrong. And I'm not sure about everything, but I know what I see is wrong. That's injust- that is just unjust. And so that is a sense that helps us to realize there's someone bigger than we are in all of that. But then there's a specific or a special revelation. God reveals himself very specifically to us through his son Jesus and through his word. The Holy Spirit helps us to understand scripture as he points Jesus out to us. But the word, God's word, scripture is the primary way that God reveals himself to us today. And the more we know about God's word, we know more we know about him through his word, the better our understanding is. Well, if you're brand new to grace, we are in a study of Genesis. And in our study of Genesis, we have discovered that God is the same in the Old Testament as he is in the New Testament. A lot of people think of the Old Testament God as a God of wrath and the New Testament God as a God of love. He's the exact same in the Old as the New. Now, no doubt we see God's plan and the beauty of his grace fully revealed in Jesus Christ. But what we have learned about God, the truth that we have learned about God in Genesis has helped us to see that the ways that the gospel was established long before the Roman road was introduced to the church. I mean, God was putting these seeds of the gospel. In fact, the gospel itself was being shared in the book of of Genesis. You remember in Galatians that Paul said that that God preached the gospel to Abraham through the scriptures. And And the Bible didn't even exist. So God was doing this work all along. And the more we recognize... The, the, the beautiful foundation that has been laid and provided for us in Genesis, the better we understand our creator and redeemer, God. Well, this morning our focus is on the God who is absolutely righteous and who loves perfectly. I would have liked to have had a better title than that. And absolutely righteous is almost redundant. I understand that. But it just speaks to who I see God to be in these two chapters that you might think are bizarre place to come up with this. Well, not the righteous part, but the perfect love in Genesis 18 and 15. Now, the great thing about reading these true stories in Genesis is that it affords us a glimpse of God's loving ways with his covenant people. <coughs> and, and, and this is a group of people who were just as confused about their circumstances as we are our lives today. You know, sometimes things just don't seem to add up for us. <coughs> they don't make sense. But God was revealing himself through their circumstances to us and helping us to see the ways that he works 
in our lives. Our, our text this morning is a full two chapters with stories that appear to be unrelated, but it's so often the case in our own lives. They're linguistically and relationally, relationally connected. Things connect way more than, than they seem to. Sometimes we have all these disparate things going on, and yet one day they all just coalesce, and we see how God was painting a far bigger picture than we were aware of. We saw this one little piece of the puzzle, and it was a complete piece if that's all you see, but once you get back and see, it's a, it's a much larger picture that is being painted by the Lord. We're only going to read the first portion of our text, uh, uh, Genesis 18. We're going to read verses 1 to 22. But we're going to cover all, all the material in these two chapters. It's really, it's almost divided up into four different places. The Lord and two angels. God in the flesh and two angels come to Abraham and God reiterates the promise that you're going to have a child, Abraham, old as you are and old as your wife is. Uh, the old gal's going to have a baby. That's what he's saying, essentially. And not that he was, you know, a young chick himself, young chick, uh, but, but he was making this amazing promise. And then there's this haggling back and forth. We won't read the rest of it, but... Abraham saying, would you please spare Sodom if you can only find a handful of righteous people there. And he was actually pleading for Lot, but he was asking on behalf of the entire city. And the Lord, <clears throat> finally they come to a conclusion, no, I will not destroy the city if there are only ten righteous people in it. <clears throat> the angels go to, to Sodom and, and against his will they snatch a uh, lot out of that place right before God judges it. And then he ends up in the hill country with his two daughters and a terrible existence all the way out for, for Lot, who was a righteous man. And we'll deal with all of that as we go. But we're just going to read the first portion of our text this morning in Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 to 22. And as is our custom, if you would, please stand as we read. The word. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. And the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, appeared to him, Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. Just standing in front of him. When he saw them... He ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. And he said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seas of fine flour, flour, knead it and make cakes. Just quick, bread, get it ready. Here we go. Now let's look at this morsel of bread that Abraham is going to make. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, where is Sarah your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah your wife 
shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? What are you going to be talking about this verse specifically, but it overshadows the entire story. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Along with Abraham's question about God, a little later, will not the judge of all the earth do the right thing? And yes, the answer to the first one is no, there is nothing too hard for God. And yes, the judge of all the earth will do right. Is anything too hard for the Lord? God's asking this about himself. At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Let's pray. (laughs) Father, we stand before you this day. As Abraham did, waiting for your word. Father, you have given us the privilege to commune with you and to interact with you and to pray to you. Even as Abraham did. And our hearts are in need of you this hour. So Lord, meet us in this place. May we be aware, just as Abraham was, that something fantastic was and is happening. Open our eyes. Help us to see you on this day. In the name of Jesus, your son. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. Did you see the images of the meteor that exploded over Russia? You see any of that video a couple of weeks ago? You know what I'm talking about, right? Hit a small portion, a small rock hit, and just blew out windows everywhere. Listen, very fortunately, that meteor exploded in the Earth's atmosphere because uh, scientists tell us that if it had hit intact, it would have obliterated a city the size of Chicago or an area the size of the city of Chicago, just just leveled it if it had, it had hit intact. 
And you know, it's, it, it, that, that meteor, that Russian meteor could just as easily have been the Harnett County meteor. I don't know that they would call it that, but you know, we, it, that's what it could have been. Uh, the story that we're, we're following in Genesis 18 and 19 is even more riveting and compelling than the Russian meteor. And it's, it's a real story. We, we tend to treat um, Scripture sometimes, the stories of Scripture, as we do Homer's Iliad and Odyssey and Aesop's fables. You know, we just, it's kind of like, it's a good story. There's a moral here for us. Let's learn what we're supposed to learn <coughs> and apply this to our lives. Instead of it, it, it's history and it's telling us something, not about the best way to live life, but it's telling us something about God, about his interaction with us. The idea of covenant is all over these two chapters in Genesis. Those of us who enjoy a covenant relationship with God through Jesus often find ourselves in a world who knows nothing about this covenant God, and they live as though they know nothing about the covenant God. And so we seem odd to them. And a lot of times, we don't want to be odd. We just want to fit in as best we can. In fact, we kid ourselves saying, you know, if I'll just be as much like the world as I can, then I may have some good influence. Look, apart from God, they're not changing. If they're going to change, it's going to be God. And the best way that we change is to be the covenant people of God in this world. That's who Abraham was. It's not who Lot was. We're going to see this great contrast between these two individuals. The Lord teaches us a great deal through Abraham about living in a world that is not truly our home. Abraham didn't have a home. He was by his tents at Mamre. I mean, he's just, you know, he moved around and he set up shop here. But this land that God promised him was never really his home. We're going to narrow down what God is teaching us to three truths or applications that we'll deal with on a much more personal level in home group than we're able to this morning. But we can set this table for a feast in the most unusual venue that we find in Genesis chapters 18 and 19. Here are the three things we're going to think about this morning. That's all you're going to see on the screen today. Those in covenant relationship with God enjoy prominent roles in God's story and should thus expect amazing and supernatural lives. This life that we're living is not an ordinary life. We live it very ordinarily. We just go about our business day in and day out, really not, again, just trying to take some moral principles that we get from Scripture and just live. But this is an amazing supernatural life. We live. Secondly, prayer is a crucial component of our, of, of our sovereign God's plan. Does that make, it's contradictory almost, isn't it? It, 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 it just, they don't seem to go together. Sovereign God who does as he will uses the prayers of his covenant people to shape the way this world moves. And then last of all, perfect love prompts righteous judgment. Again, that just is a little bit off, it seems, that really righteous judgment comes. Perfect love seems like it would just make everything okay. 
Well, it does for God's covenant people, but not always in the ways that we anticipate. What, what happened to Abraham in our story is not likely to happen to you. Although I am absolutely not going to say it wouldn't happen. That God would appear to you. I have, I have heard of one case. I've mentioned it several times here before. One of our missionaries in Suriname, in the jungles of Suriname, a woman, I believe, had a direct counter, encounter with Jesus Christ. I believe it was Jesus who came to this jungle woman. And told her, men will come who will tell you about me. That's a Christophany. I I believe that that happened. That Jesus Christ appeared to this woman. Um, And, you know, we think about, oh, well, she's a jungle woman. Well, has Jesus ever appeared to you? Man, think of how special this was for this lady. I I doubt seriously that's ever going to happen to us. In fact, any... Special things that God does today, it seems to me, happens in places where the word is not prevalent. So while we're not going to have the same kind of encounter with God maybe that Abraham had, we have something just as good. This is how God encounters us day in and day out, in his word, through his word. And we meet him just like Abraham met him. And... We engage him in the same way that Abraham engaged the Lord, and that is through faith. Abraham recognized that that there was something special about his visitors. First of all, they showed up at an unusual time. Middle of the day, it was sort of a siesta for them. It was a time of rest. It wasn't the time that they wanted to be having company. You know, there are times when the doorbell rings and you think, who would be coming at this time of day? Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, probably who's coming. But anyway, you, you know, this is just not a kind of time that you expect people to show up and they come. And, and in fact, most people wouldn't go out of their way, although the Bedouin hospitality would dictate that you do something. But Abraham just went overboard. He recognized right away there was something special about these three visitors <coughs> and that of the three, one stood out. It's quite clear. A few weeks ago, when Sean was preaching from Genesis 15 to 17, he pointed out that when God restated his promise to give Abraham a son, Abraham and Sarah a son, it had been some 15 years since he had made that initial promise. Well, now it's been 23 to 24 years old. Each time that God makes this promise, it seems more and more unlikely. I mean, the temptation has got to be say, yeah, yeah, heard it before. It's not happening. You know, just get a grip with reality. It's not going to happen. Abraham was nearly 100 years old, and even more importantly, Sarah was nearly 90 years old. I think I told you this before, that Sarah's the only woman in the Bible whose age is mentioned. So we know how old she was at this point. She was almost 90 years old. And and God says to Abraham, about this time next year, I'm going to come. I'm going to return to you. And Sarah is going to have a son. Now, let me just say that the version of the story that we get is the PG-13 version. I'm, I'm not kidding you. This, in Especially in chapter 19, there is some very pointed language underneath the surface. You don't see it necessarily in the English, but there is some very direct direct language and innuendo as well. 
double entendres almost with all that's going on here. Sarah laughed not only because her body had stopped working in the way it has to work in order to produce a child, but also there's evidence in this way this is written that Abraham and Sarah were no longer intimate. That So she's just like saying, it's not happening. It's not, I'm not having a child. And so she just sort of <coughs> chuckles to herself. Now, Sarah <coughs> laughed to herself. And even though she was in the tent and she's just kind of doing this very quietly and God is out there, he says, why did Sarah laugh? I mean, how did he know that she laughed? Because she was, well, God knows everything, Right? But we think we know everything. See, we're more like Sarah than we ever want to admit that we are. We are the ones who know everything. Maybe it's like, more like we know what we can see, and that's all there is, really. I mean, look, I know that there's more to this life than can be seen. But functionally, I I live as though there's not more to this life than I can see than is right in front of my face. In reality, as a part of God's covenant community, God has placed me, He has placed you in a prominent role in His story. And you ought to expect an amazing life, a supernatural life. See, here's the problem. Was it an amazing thing that at 90 years old, Sarah had a baby? That was amazing, wasn't it? Well, this baby had been promised since she was 65. And at 89, it doesn't look like such an amazing thing. You see, that's where we are, We live in these in-between years and so we think this is all there is and we laugh to ourselves and we think God is going to do something amazing in and through my life. And some of you, my goodness, I don't, you're young. Some of you are old and you think, what's my purpose? What am I doing here? This life, do I really make a difference in this life? And, and sadly, when, when the Lord does use us, we are so desperate to feel like we make a difference, then we hang on to that and say, well, look what I did. Rather than by faith saying, you know, every single thing that happens in my life, God is using as a part of his story. He's building his kingdom. And I get to play a prominent role in it. Thank you, Lord. And even though it makes no sense and it doesn't, it's not revealed itself right now, I know you're doing something amazing in my life. Protestants in general tend to be obsessive over reactors. When we add to that the belief of word over experience, and absolutely, when people want to say, well, tell me about God, you need to tell them what, the book says not, well, I had this experience one time, and, you know, it was really cool, and, and God just was so real to me. Tell them what the Word says. But don't fall 
prey to the temptation to become quite natural in the way that you live, not expecting God to move out of the ordinary. How tragic when we live our lives as smart people of the human race because we know God, we know about how we're supposed to live, and that puts us ahead of others, and that's it. Well, there's no question that when we live as though we have a special knowledge about what God's going to do. I mean, so many times, don't you hear people say, <laughs> well, God's, God's in that. I see the Lord's hand. And then sometimes it just goes the absolutely opposite direction of the way God's hand was moving. If you see God's hand in everything and you think that God is making your life a particular special way and that everything's just going to be perfect for you, then you're going to not only live long enough to be disappointed, but you're going to be shown to be foolish and, and a poor testimony for the Lord when things don't go. I know what the Lord's going to do. No, what, are you the fourth member of the Trinity and we didn't know? How do you know what God's going to do? His ways are so much higher than our ways. His, his thoughts than our thoughts. In this, the instant we think that we've got it figured out, he moves in another direction. But it's not because he's trying to play hide and seek and be mysterious to us. It's just that he's God and we're not. And when we, by faith, though, accept the fact that he loves us and that he's put us in this prominent role, we can expect supernatural things. The most important step of faith we will ever take is when we believe that Jesus died on the cross in our place. That he died for our sins and then through repentance from sin and through faith in Jesus, we're saved. The gospel is counterintuitive, even for religious people, especially to religious people. Because most people worry about what they need to do in order for God to be pleased with them. But faith based on scripture tells us it's not what you do. You can never do enough. It's what Jesus has done for you. It's what he's already done. I mean, if you live your life trying to get to the place where God says, you're okay. I'm going to let you in. You're never getting there. You're never because he's holy and righteous and we are sinful. But when we recognize that Jesus Christ lived the life that we were incapable of living, he kept the law perfectly and thus became an eligible sacrifice that he literally got in the way of God's wrath. All those who will hide behind Jesus find that Jesus has absorbed the wrath of God that was rightly directed toward them. It's not about what I can do, but about what Jesus has done for me. It's no more nor less dramatic than believing, as Abraham did, that long after childbearing years, God would give them a son through Sarah because he said so. You'll notice in Genesis 18 that the promise to Abraham of a son who would bless the world was spoken in the context of a meal. Abraham and Sarah went out of their way to provide this feast for their guest in the middle of the day, which is not when most people did it at the siesta in the day. By the way, have you noticed how much more emphasis there is in Scripture on feasting than there is fasting? In both the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's only one fast day in the Old Testament, the Day of Atonement, but feast days are all over the place. 
And, and, and the same thing is true in the New Testament. We see people communing over, over food all the time. That's true. <coughs> um, one of the great things about our home groups is that, is that we are able to fellowship with one another in the context of a meal or at the very least um, dessert and coffee, which brings me to the point, main point of the, the sermon that to not drink coffee is sinful. Just checking to see if you're awake. That's absolutely not true. In fact, I am more likely to sin after I've had a lot of coffee. Well, we are in just a few minutes going to share a meal as brothers and sisters as we gather at the Lord's table. Now, you probably don't think of this as a meal, but remember when the first Lord's, when the Lord's Supper was initiated, what was it in the context of? Passover meal. And in the early church, it was also celebrated usually in the context of a love feast until the abuses got so bad that they had to separate the sacrament from the meal. All of this first point comes together in our time at the Lord's table in just a few minutes. By faith, we'll take the bread and the fruit of the vine in remembrance of Jesus' death on our behalf, signifying our place in the covenant community. Here's a big question, though. Is this just a meal of remembrance, or is it more? I mean, we, we reject the idea that, 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 that the bread and the, and, the, and the wine become the body and the blood of Christ, but we most likely overreact in Protestant, good Protestant fashion when we say that this is just a meal of remembrance. God is meeting us here in a very special way. And by faith, just as Abraham engaged those visitors with that meal on that day, by faith the Lord meets us and works in our lives spiritually at his table. I'm not sure what that means. I have no idea what it means that he meets us in a special way. But something supernatural is occurring when we eat in faith. Life of a Christ follower is so much more than meets the eye. We encounter God in his word. And interestingly enough, the more time we spend in the word, the more our faith grows and the more we see of God's supernatural ways. Some people think scripture actually limits their supernatural interaction with God and they need to get beyond that. But no, as your faith grows, you see the ways of God in his word and you recognize everything that is going on around you that is not seen. Well, one of the ways that Scripture encourages us to interact with God is through prayer. When the three visitors left Abraham, the two angels continued towards Sodom, but uh, where Lot was. But the Lord came back to speak to Abraham. And what an interesting exchange. I mean, the Lord says, look, we're going down to check out the evil in Sodom to see if it's really as bad as... But Abraham knew. Abraham knew he was going to destroy Sodom. And so he said... Lord, surely if you can find 50 righteous people in Sodom, you won't destroy it. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? And the Lord said, that's correct. If I can find 50 people there, I will not destroy it. Now, I made that sound like this bold statement, but Abraham offered this prayer, this intercessory prayer for the people of Sodom in great humility. 
he was praying for Sodom, but he was really praying that God would spare Lot. Just his nephew was family. He knew that Lot was part of the covenant promise that God had made with Abraham. (coughs) And so he prayed, would you please spare? So Abraham realized 50 was a stretch. So he said, well, what about 45? And then 40, and then 30, and 20, and 10. And the Lord said, that's enough. And Abraham you know, he knew where this was heading. This wasn't going in a good direction. Um, but he had done his best in prayer. So what are we to make of this exchange between Abraham and, and, and the Lord? My goodness, how many weeks could we spend right here? I want to be brief though so that we can think about the lessons of, of Lot and Sodom. In this supernatural life that we live, it is a fact that the sovereign God of the universe, who does as he will, has included the prayers of his people as one of the key ways that his hand moves in the lives of men and women in the events of our times. And that is just astounding truth. So many people are afraid of the, of the doctrine of election and of sovereignty because they say, well, what if my loved one is not saved? Look, if you're in connection with somebody, you remember, you are a, as a covenant member, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have a prominent role in the story. In every life you touch, there's something significant going on. And the only thing that's negative about that is when you don't pray, God has called you to To be light in a dark world. And when you intercede for these people, very likely that's the way God has designed all of this so that he will sovereignly bring them into that covenant community. So take heart and when you pray, pray in humility and pray in faith. How does it all work? When you figure it out, please let me know. When people say prayer works, they're right, but, but probably not in the way that they think. Remember when you pray, you're speaking with the sovereign God of the universe, and he has graciously chosen you to be an integral part of his plan. So trust him regardless of the answer. Prayer works because of God. We just, we're just blessed to be able to participate. He's always working for his glory and your good. Your good is the subject of this last point. Perfect love prompts righteous judgment. Aren't you glad, first of all, that God hasn't answered all of your prayers exactly as you've prayed them? Secondly, aren't you glad that God will not allow you to just live any way that you want to? And he stops you from making foolish mistakes even though every fiber of your being moves in a particular direction if God would just grant you this one desire everything would be okay when the angels came to Sodom Lot immediately recognized just like Abraham did recognized them as important visitors sent from the Lord but he also knew the wickedness of the people of Sodom and so he 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 forced them practically to come to his house it's too dangerous for you to say in the city square tonight I know what's going to happen And sure enough, after dark fell, after darkness fell, the men of the city of Sodom, every single one of them, young and old, they all came to the house and demanded that Lot send them out so that they could rape them. This was just unusual 
activity in that day. There was this kind of lack of hospitality was just not tolerated in civilized places. And yet here they were demanded that they could come out, that they came out, would come out so that <clears throat> the men could know them or have sex with them. Now, even though we're told in other places that there's a great deal of injustice and most likely a, a mistreatment of the poor in Sodom. There's no doubt that God was displaced with the open acceptance of homosexual sin in the city and the violence that accompanied it. That is never going to change. I don't care how much our culture changed. That's not going to change. Look, I'm not foolish enough to think, naive enough to think that there are not people in this room right now who struggle with those urges. I got, I, you have to know that, that doesn't mean that you're an evil, wicked person any more than the person next to you. Because I, I can assure you there are heterosexual urges in this room that are inappropriate and that need to be controlled. So sin is sin and God gives us not only command, but the ability to overcome it if we will yield and trust to him. But in this case, the, the fact that the city is completely given over to homosexuality, which is a perversion of God's ways, just is. It is enough for God to say, I am bringing judgment on the city. There are other things at all. This is when you give yourself over to anything it ends up in a bad place. This was the place that Lot had wanted to live. Second Peter 2, 6-9 tells us very clearly that righteous Lot was a righteous man. Or in other words, we're going to see Lot in heaven. He was saved. His actions clearly contrast with the men of Sodom. But it's evident from this account that Lot, who had so desperately wanted to live in this place where life was happening... Where everything was, you know, moving and not run around tending sheep somewhere in the middle of nowhere with Abraham. When Lot got to Sodom, he maintained his faith, his walk with the Lord. But he had zero influence. Absolute zero influence. Not even, he couldn't even persuade his future sons-in-law to leave with him. Wonder how much influence we're going to have when we come to the end of our lives. I wonder the influence we will have had. What, what do you think is a bigger deal that Linda Tally, Linda failed Tally, influenced as many people as she did, or that she would still be living and just kind of living for herself? Where do you? Where would you rather see her? I'd rather see any of us with having lived our lives in this supernatural covenant relationship that we have with God by faith, praying and impacting other people. Abraham had huge influence. Lot had zero. Zero. God did a good thing for Lot. He snatched him out of that sinful place so that he would avoid the greater judgment of God. He does that for us as well. Sometimes, it, 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 as it seems to have been with Lot, we, we don't want to be snatched. You know, it's like, leave me alone, leave me alone. But God snatches us anyway in his mercy. The God who is absolutely righteous and who loves perfectly 
sees, understands sin to be a threat to life. Sin always destroys and it takes away that which is good. It's never the goodness of a husband who walks out on his wife and family. Never the goodness of a wife who walks out on her husband to be unfaithful with another person. It's sin. And in mercy, God deals with sin in our lives. He aims at the cancer, the destruction of every good thing. The picture of God that is painted in Genesis 19 is not one that the world is ever going to understand or accept. So quit trying to get the world to understand it. Not going to. If you're outside the covenant family of God, and that is not a a cause for arrogance, by the way. It's great humility that we say, God has for whatever reason chosen this miserable wretch of a human being to be in his family. He's blessed him with Jesus and by faith in Jesus, I am his child. But you're never going to, it just doesn't make sense to people outside. Give people Jesus. And quit trying to give explanation for everything. As for you, if you choose to dwell in a land that is exceedingly wicked, and there's nothing we can do about our culture, I understand that. But if you choose to move in ways that place you in in environments that are exceptionally wicked and you find yourself being comfortable there, then do not be surprised if the consequences are severe as they were for, for Lot for the rest of his miserable life. There's no other way to describe the rest of his life. How horrible. This morning we're called to commune with God much like Abraham did when God visited him in memory. We're invited together to his table to remember Jesus' sacrifice for us. It's a time that we're called to examine ourselves and recognize that God's perfect love prompts righteous judgment. In fact, 1 Corinthians eleven thirty one puts it this way. If we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. Let's pray in just a moment. Ted McKinney is going to come and lead us in communion.